Hey, a little quick note before we jump into today's episode. Just like last time, this episode contains spoilers. So if you haven't read it yet and you want to create your own impressions from Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, go support the artist by picking up this book. We're still getting used to the whole format of podcasting, and I've noticed that my microphone has a tendency to dip in and out. I've just invested in a new power source, and I hope that'll correct this. And just a heads up, in two weeks, the next comic we'll analyze and talk about is The Magic Fish by Trung Le Nguyen. Without further ado, let's go! everyone, welcome to Art of Comics, and this week we're going to be talking about Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. I'm Paul Duffield, I'm a comic artist slash art director slash nuisance, and I love talking about comics. Uh, hello, I'm Jaws, I'm an artist and a streamer, I'm a cryptid permanently residing in your local VHS store that probably went out of town 20 years ago. Ancient denizen of Blockbuster. Let's just say we're old enough to not give out our ages. Yeah, we're vintage. Mm, yeah, vintage in that kind of cool, found it in a neat store and... And very expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Overpriced? No. Just the right price. Yeah, absolutely. Pure value. We've both written a blurb for this, so it's going to be interesting. Freddy is a rather typical portrayal of a teenager, self-absorbed, and thinks the world is ending over and over again because her girlfriend keeps breaking up with her. Can the advice of a columnist help her off of this angst-filled roller coaster? P.S. Why is Laura Dean such a bitch? <laughs> okay, your blurb actually sounds like a, a sort of, you know, you've written your blurb. Mine is literally just some shorthand, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> Freddie is a 17-year-old girl going through relationship troubles. She's dating Laura Dean, who, spoilers, keeps breaking up with her, and treating her poorly as well. Uh, the story plays out as Freddy struggles to see how she's being mistreated, and to balance her life with her girlfriend, who she's obsessed with, and her friends. I honestly think your blurb is good enough that we don't need the main blurb. Okay, well, as long as there's nothing weird in the main blurb, then, uh, you know, claiming the book is about something it's not really about, I always find that interesting. So, okay... Let me take the very tail end of the blurb, where it says, because I think it's also nice to mention that this is, uh, once again, written by Mariko Tamaki, who did the comic we did last week. But this time it's illustrated by Rosemary Valero O'Connell. And it says that this team brings to life a sweet and spirited tale of young love that asks us to consider what happens when we ditch the toxic relationship we crave to embrace the healthy ones we need. If I can just jump straight in, I think that the thought of that is good, but do you feel that that is executed well within this story? Well, that's an interesting one, because nobody's particularly nice in this story. Everybody's incredibly self-absorbed. So it's difficult to say who's toxic on any kind of like clear ranking scale. Not that there's a real clear ranking scale in life, but um, you know, if we're going to try and make one, then I guess Laura Dean is probably worse than the rest of them, but... You know, the rest of them spend most of the book not really communicating with each other, and yeah. <laughs> the thing is, I mentioned to you off record last time that I was very eager to do this one because I read this on release, I believe, back in 2019. This was a very big deal for me back then. I was very excited for it to come out. And as I told you, 
I was not particularly taken by this. And I felt like the 1% because ever since I've been recommended this comic numerous times, even though I have already read it. And my question to you is, what were your initial thoughts since this was a fresh read for you? It took me a long while to settle into reading the story, I think. I kept on tripping over the art in odd ways, which is strange because it's really beautiful and, and there's very little technically wrong with it. But there was something wasn't sucking me in. Um, and then about two thirds of the way through, when the story begins to turn and the main character, Freddie, really starts to realize what the relationship with Laura is doing to her and her friends, it genuinely started to absorb me. But by the time I'd fully got into it, it all wrapped itself up with a, like a nice pretty bow and sort of felt like kind of going on a car journey where it takes a long time to get up to full speed and then I suddenly break the moment I'm up to full speed in terms of pacing. And given that this plays mainly as a sort of a, a straight romance, and I'm seriously into romance comics, like I've read a heck of a lot of shoujo um, and a lot of BL, it just, you know, by the time it grabbed me well, it let me go again, which is, uh, which is a shame. But then I guess it's self-contained, so uh, it's sort of different from your sort of average ongoing 90-volume shoujo. I have to admit that my initial reaction is still my reaction. Upon a second read, I am sadly no more into this than I was the first time around. And I had honestly really hoped that going into this, you would be floored by this so you could bring something to me that I missed. Because I think I mentioned this the last time that one of my favorite things when I don't necessarily vibe with something is that someone else can bring me the perspective and showing me why they do. And then I can learn to appreciate it in a different way that I missed the first time around. And what you're saying right now is very much my impression with it too. Was it mainly kind of like a technical execution thing or was it a content thing that stopped you from really getting into it? I think for me, it's a, a couple of different things. I took some very short notes to to have something to expand upon when we are chatting today. And I will have to admit straight out the gate that as a person in my mid-30s, I am over teenage stories. I feel like I am not the target audience here, which isn't necessarily true because there's so many stories about kids and teenagers that can really make an impact on you as an adult. Just take last week's comic. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, absolutely. So it's absolutely not impossible. But in this particular scenario, the fact that they are teenagers makes it very hard for me to get on their level because without sounding like I'm trivializing teenage problems because they are very much real when you're a teenager. And I know that your bar for what is considered life-altering and world-ending, that bar just keeps shifting the older you get. So, of course, something that I now find world-ending for me when I'm hopefully in my 60s, I'll look back and be like, ha ha ha, you dumb bitch. Like, that was nothing. <laughs> and I think now, as the vintage fine wine that I am, looking back on teenage problems, it's very unrelatable content for me. Yeah, I'd say, I think I commented last week that this one summer feels very much about the teenage perspective, but written from the point of view of an adult whereas I feel like this is much sort of like truer to the to the demographic you know it feels like it's written for the demographic and in that respect I agree it's not really for me 
Now, it might be worth sort of just reading a little quote on the back because um, I think a lot of people probably super appreciated it both because they enjoyed it and it's well sort of illustrated and stuff but specifically it says here Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me is a stunningly beautiful book and a breath of fresh air in the canon of young LGBTQ literature in that it doesn't focus on homophobia coming out or repression but instead follows a twisting and utterly relatable teen love story it does have that going for it I think it's unusual to read something about a lesbian romance that's not hyper tragic in that kind of everyone dies kind of way and is uh, just, you know, tragic in an everyday teen sort of way. Yeah, I think you're touching upon something very important because now more than ever, there is this purity conversation going on that queer stories aren't allowed to be imperfect. And by that, I mean, you aren't allowed to have quote unquote problematic themes in your queer stories, which is obscene and to me really comes across as some sort of weird censor thing. And I do think the fact that Laura Dean, the story Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me, shows what in a straight story would have been a very well-trodden narrative. It's fresh to see that between a queer couple. Yeah, and there's probably a lot of a lot of younger readers who just love it because they felt seen, you know. They were able to read a story that was like this, but wasn't about a straight couple. And I think that's really valuable. That's another way in which I'm, you know, I'm not the target audience here as like a late 30s cis white (laughs) male. But, you know, it's still the kind of stuff that I would have absolutely devoured as um, a teenager and read plenty of, I'm not sure, can you count BL as queer comics? I don't think you can really, certainly not, not BL from the 90s anyway. Honestly, I would say you can count it as queer, but I've been thinking about this. We need to sit down and just do a concentrated episode sometime about Yaoi and Sean and I. Yeah. And just like dissect all the garbage that's going on there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to really enjoy that. I think that'll be fun. Oh, same. I'm I'm glad we're on the page. But um, yeah, another thing that I wrote down is that the dialogue doesn't feel organic to me. Yeah, there's something sort of, and I struggle to put my finger on this. Last week after we recorded, I said there was a phrase I'd probably be using a lot when we were talking about these podcasts, that a good script well illustrated isn't necessarily a good comic. And I think this may be not an extreme example of it, but a kind of a little bit of one. Like the art is beautifully rendered stunning expressions are lovely the layouts are uh, pristine there's nothing technically wrong with the script but i think that there's something that didn't quite gel about the whole thing in a way that it did in this one summer you know and i it felt like mariko and jillian really just got each other and it's almost like there's kind of these two creators aren't quite as together for me in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. I, I pulled out some specific examples in the book to talk about, but I was interested to know if you'd agree. Just like you, I kind of struggle to really pinpoint where my issue is within the storytelling here, because as you mentioned, the art is out of this world. I can safely say that this artist is probably one of my favorite comic artists as of right now, just because I've always been incredibly enamored by O'Connell's style and their paneling, just the way they tackle the format is so inspirational to me. But with that said, there's also something almost a little storyboardy with it, Contra comic, where I feel sometimes I am watching something that should be filmatized instead of something that 
close as a comic. And I, I don't necessarily think it's because of the art or the paneling itself always, but the disconnect for me between the written dialogue and the visual dialogue, where it kind of along the way of what you mentioned, where just when you started to feel invested, the, the book was over. And that's how I felt in a lot of the conversations where just when I feel I'm in the flow of how these characters interact with one another, it's like, bam, scene change. And I think that is this weird economy that we have in comics in general, where we aren't allowed enough time with each scene, because of course, making a comic is incredibly time consuming. It quickly becomes very expensive if you're gonna allow a lot of extra panels for continuity and the feeling of a seamless flow of passing of time. But there truly is something to the art of blending written text with visual text that for me, this comic doesn't hit the mark. Yeah, it's kind of like an alchemy, isn't it? When it re when you really hit it right, it's the sum of the two parts is greater than the whole. And, you know, I think the two parts are perfectly wonderful in this but you don't get that kind of extra that extra level out of it except for like right at the end and it, there's going to be a certain amount of this which is subjective i'm going into this with a very critical mind and as a creator as well and i'd imagine a lot of readers aren't gonna kind of clock this uh, and i know that i have this problem you know 10 times as much with let's say your average marvel comic which i know plenty of people will happily read and be fully absorbed with so it's just it's worth putting that on the table for me at least i also mentioned to you off the record that i have a big hesitation being vocally negative about comic work because as a comic creator myself i have the utmost respect and understanding for how time consuming this is the insane passion and craft that goes into it and the fact that sometimes there are so many outside sources affecting why the end result is the way it is. And we have no way of knowing why that is. I just want to stress that I don't think this is by any means a bad comic. I think it's fantastic. I just don't think it's for me. And I, I struggle coming to terms with that personal disappointment. I think that's very important for me to emphasize going into this. And that's also why I bookmarked page 119, which is six panels of Doodle, the, the friend of Freddy, where she starts to have a conversation about a plan she's having for the day. She's going to see her DM, and she knows that as soon as she's starting to express her plan for the day, Freddy isn't paying attention. And we never even have to see Freddy in these panels to know that that's what's happening, because the character is so beautifully rendered from panel one to six, where she starts a little hesitantly sharing her story, and then she's like, never mind, by the end of it. Yeah, really beautiful use of tone in these panels as well, the way the shadow passes across her when she's not kind of really being paid attention to or doesn't believe she's being paid attention to. Mm -hmm. Another page, A2 pager that I marked was 156 and 157 where the paneling is so fun and whimsical, and at least for me, I can only speak for myself, very easy to follow. And the very bottom panel is Laura and Freddie walking towards the right, and the rest of the friend group walking towards the left. The friend group is in this beautiful light pink tone, so they very much blend into the background, mm. while Laura and Freddie are in stark black, so they're very visible, and it shows this very well portrayed divide of how 
the main character is prioritizing her toxic girlfriend over her friend group and kind of fading away from them. And that is so beautifully executed, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, really nicely done. There's a lot of really, really lovely moments. There's also some, and I don't know if this is just an experience thing. I think um, Rosemary Valera O'Connell is still sort of a relatively young artist must have been even younger when she started this to page 281 this is when she finally breaks up with laura dean herself i couldn't tell what was going on in this page i couldn't tell if laura was slamming the door open slamming the door shut yelling at her yelling behind the door the framing and the direction and the direction that she's yelling just doesn't quite match up as a sort of a stark contrast to those beautiful moments you picked out and it's unusual for a comic to both have moments of utter confusion at the height of emotional importance like this ripped me right out of the story at a really important page and also moments handled so delicately and beautifully that they stick in your memory as as amazing comic storytelling and perhaps there's a kind of a an overall hesitancy to the way that the that the book is kind of put together that stops it ever from being the perfect read even though it's an excellent read it's definitely an interesting contrast and there are a couple of other sort of like little moments like that where the art is technically beautiful, but perhaps a little over-rendered or overthought. And I kept on coming back to this idea that the authors clearly were deeply influenced by Japanese romance comics, both in terms of style, panel, pacing, delivery, subject matter, all that kind of stuff. But this is so much more labor-intensive. It's so much less economical. I can feel the effort and the time that every single page took to put together and it loses a little bit of its of the potential kind of like visceral pace that it might have had had it been a little bit looser a little bit sketchier there's a particular creator that i'd absolutely love to talk to you about at some point called erica sakurazawa who writes almost exclusively romance for like old women and her line work is just exquisite it's beautiful but it's also fast it's intuitive and loose and that kind of combination is really really potent for this kind of story and i think possibly it's just you know it's a light concept it's teen romance but it's treated very 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 seriously and laboriously and that makes an interesting juxtaposition i think in a in a book like this also sort of speaks to the way that it was received you know, I got the impression it was a very important book somehow due to its reception. Did you get that feeling? I don't know if I got that it was important in the way that I get the sense that you're describing right now. I know that it was important for me personally because until a certain point, queer comics outside of Japan, and as we mentioned earlier, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Even though they're queer comics, they are far from problem-free. But to have... These kind of stories, which are now just in the short span since this came out in, again, I believe 2019, there's been so much more. So it feels almost weird to look back on the fact that this was a little rare. But I personally, again, I think this has to do with my age and the age of the people I converse with. That for us, it wasn't important in the regard that it definitely is important for younger people. You can feel it in the storytelling. It's carrying that as a weight, I think. And it's so wonderful that it was, it managed to kind of break that ice in a way, certainly for mainstream publishing, because we all know webcomics have been doing that forever. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, because this is, you know, this is a major publisher, this is first, second. And the fact that they were willing to publish this and, and put it out there, I think is 
excellent and significant. So you've got the kind of the, the curse of the first, you know? <laughs> yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong, though, but first, second, definitely have had several queer comics published before this one. Hi, editor's note here. I kept trying to remember the titles to illustrate my point that this was by far publisher's first second queer release. But instead of listening to me rambling to pull for several minutes, failing to grasp at titles, I'll just list a couple here. That same year, in 2019, even before Laura Dean, both Kiss Number 8, written by Colleen A.F. Venable and illustrated by Ellen T. Crenshaw, as well as Bloom, written by Kevin Panetta and illustrated by Savannah Ganeshow, was released. And even further back, in 2017, they published Spinning by Tilly Walden. I could go on, but these were specifically the titles I tried to recall during our conversation. Alright, on with the episode. I guess that's that's a kind of... I, I keep on kind of talking around this, but it's simultaneously a light and breezy read and a really heavy read at the same time. And, and, and I think it has something to do with this fact that it was like an unusual thing to be able to read at all. And the story does implicitly acknowledge that like in the script at least a couple of times yeah do you mean the meta commentary that happens in the story where they have the obvious classroom educational what is his name again the the politician harvey milk that's is right that his name yeah, yeah yeah they have these kind of things braided in and that made me want to ask you the cafe that serves food themed by queer people oh, like yeah. the names of the dishes are names of <laughs> famous queer people yeah the one that the the owner is refusing to put on the menu is that the the actress from silence of the lambs oh possibly i thought i wasn't sure if it was a made-up example to avoid like being problematic but the other the other examples weren't made up um no, I think what's what's her name again? Help me out on garbage with names. Hold on. Foster? Jodie Foster? Jodie Foster. Um oh I know her best from Contact, which is the best movie ever. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. And yeah. she had this conversation is so neither here nor there. But I I'm pretty sure she had a coming out speech in either Oscar or Golden Globe or whatever. Oh, I see. So it was a bit of a snipe at that. I That's what I wanted to ask you. If you took the snipe, I think that's the snipe. But I can't remember if that happened prior to 2019 or now. But I do think it did. No, I'm, I'm showing the, the incredible amount to which I'm not plugged into like Hollywood gossip or any kind of modern popular media that isn't comics. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, I, I'm curious. I would... I would love for any listener to to let me know what what they're actually referring to there, if it is Jodie Foster or if it is someone else. But another big gripe for me with this story, and this is this is my biggest and also my final of the the three pointer gripes I wrote down. Laura Dean, the, the titular Laura Dean, reads almost like an antagonist in this story. She's almost written like a villain. Yeah. And we never get a reasoning for her behavior. We get tiny droplets of hints of maybe neglect of parents, like absent parents, something along those lines. And she definitely has some issues of being left alone. She seems to always have to be surrounded by people. And I, as someone who need to see both sides because nothing is black and white, it very much frustrates me that we never get any sort of proper validation for Laura Dean's behavior. 
yeah or even any explanation i think you're the, the couple of things that you picked up on are the only the only real threads in there unless there's something really subtle that i didn't notice um but really like there was one thing i missed from my blurb actually i i wrote down that she's quote unquote the cool girl and she very much comes across about as shallow as that trope from your average like movie with a geek main character you know she's the girl who's always surrounded by girls she's the girl everyone wants to be and she's incredibly self-confident and however she got that way i don't know Again, she I don't know if it's just the way she's drawn to a certain extent. I certainly think there is something to what you mentioned that it's the geek and the cool person because Laura Dean reads very much like a straight guy where yeah. she's a player, she's handsome, all the girls want her or want to be her. And I think that is very much the narrative that a lot of people portray in couples even when they're queer couples and the question i was left with at the end was are we just supposed to really fucking hate laura dean because i personally don't enjoy that and is the moral of the story just dump that toxic person because to me i i know people will be so divided on this because i know a lot of people kind of love to hate other people <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that is very unrelatable for me i have to say personally i've been wronged i have wronged people and i think in the process a lot of people are willing to forget that they too have most definitely wronged someone and i'm not trying to say that if you've been really 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 fucking heinous to someone that you deserve to still be in someone else's life that's not what i'm trying to advocate here but I just really sincerely believe that behind most people's behavior, there is a reasoning. And that can also make you, if not necessarily forgive or really like a character, you, you're allowed to at least have a smidge of sympathy for them. And the draining part for me with this book is that I get very upset with how mean Laura Dean is and how desperately Freddy still craves her. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It almost feels like it might have been written by somebody who had that kind of similar attraction to somebody who was just desperately wrong for them when they were younger. Or they're just picking up on that trope and working with it. But I do find this idea of the toxic relationship really fascinating. Because it's also incredibly valuable. You know, I think there are probably a lot of people who've been able to get out of abusive relationships because they've been introduced to that concept and because they've been introduced to the idea that they should really look out for themselves first and they shouldn't fall into these weird obsessions, which, you know, I, I think they're more than fictional, like certainly experienced by real people. But at the same time, we all crave a villain. And when you crave a villain, you're never the villain. And that just means that you can take something that's incredibly complex and nuanced and reduce it to they're the toxic one. I'm the hero, or they're the villain, I'm the hero. And I do think this book strays a bit too close to doing that, which I guess I'm just saying the same thing as you did. That kind of brings me round to the thing that bugged me most about it, because the pacing issues aside, it did pull me along, and I did really get invested in it, and I did feel emotionally for the characters, and, you know, I was sort of, it was cathartic when she broke up with Laura. But the fact that the book ties itself up so nicely... It even has the line, I like happy endings, near the end, which you can't really get much more on the nose than that. And everything's happy. 
she's dan- she's literally dancing with her friend and Laura is gone and has been left shouting obscenities behind a door and that's the last we see of her. I think the idea that like because this is a very true to life teeny story the idea that there's uh, that's an ending it just didn't sort of it didn't end right for me it felt sort of like oh okay for a book that felt very authentic the ending was a little trite and and maybe it just chose to end on that high note because you do get the ups and the downs as you uh, when you're that age and maybe that's fine but again it interacts with the overall story oddly and i don't know maybe we're reading are we reading too in too much into this i i just caught myself thinking the same like are we too <laughs> old bitches tearing <laughs> apart is incredibly i don't know if innocent is the right word because there are some questionable people in this but this i guess weirdly relatable teen story for actual teenagers are are we just too old and bitter paul is that is that the takeaway here that we are just too old for this source material and not in a condescending way but it is very difficult for us to to put ourselves on that level because I know people are very different, but I th- I think it's safe to say for myself, if my girlfriend started behaving to me like Laura Dean does to Freddie, I would talk to her about it because my fucking big kink in life is communication. Same, same. Like me and my girlfriend have a very similar relationship, so perhaps... Perhaps there's an element of this that I mean I do I do know one of my pet peeves in stories is lack of communication leading to drama. Especially when it's repetitive lack of communication. I think a lot of people, of course, every now and then have episodes where if you both just were a little better at communicating your feelings or your intent, you would have avoided a big spill later on. But that's just life. That's just being human and being messy. There's no life without conflict. That's just very unrealistic. But when the source issue over and over and over and over again is the lack of communication, it's very frustrating. To that point, I just want to shoot in that the only time I finally felt something for Laura was when Freddie broke up with her and she had a genuine reaction because when she blows the lid and tells her fuck you over and over again and she's crying i was like oh she actually has real emotions because her reaction to this is very real yeah and that feels like it's been absent the entire rest of the book yeah it felt like that was it was difficult to tell whether she just cared that she was being screwed with and she wasn't getting her way or whether that was suddenly we caught a glimpse of how much she really did actually care about freddie and if it's the latter it's kind of tragic because yeah. this isn't a story about someone learning to communicate. It's a story about someone learning to self-advocate. And I think those are two very different things. Like, I don't feel like she sat down with her friend and explicitly talked about what had been between them at the end, for example. She didn't sort of acknowledge all of those things and talk out loud about them, which is, you know, a really valuable part of conversation. She just sat down and then everything was fine because she was doing the right thing. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I tell you what, though, if if we're going to sort of say, you know, maybe we're just we're just a little bit bitter or this isn't our kind of material. Maybe we just need to pick the most romancy of romances that we can remember and give it another try. Something that we read at this age. Uh, I'm thinking about, I don't know, something like Peach Girl. Did you ever read that? No. Okay, right. It's just it's the most intense of 
character keeps on breaking up with me drama that I can possibly think of. It, it, it's this, but it goes on for about 10 volumes. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> we can at least try the first one and, and see how it resonates. Because I remember Peach Girl being gripping. It wasn't trying to be moral in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't trying to teach you a lesson. It was just about the stuff that's in this book. It wasn't about itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get what you're you're getting at. I will have to say, in the same regards as I said, I would love to do just an entire episode about the general subject of boy love. My biggest wish is that we can do an entire episode in the future on fake, the manga fake. Okay, yep. Um, I have never read the manga. I've seen the anime. Oh, but, but, but they're not comparable. <laughs> okay. First off, I think they weirdly jump into volume five or something. Right. <laughs> and that's it. So it's it's very much like hit and run kind of distillation of the manga. Let's do that then. Yeah, I would love that because I don't think I've read it since I was a teenager. I also have a killer story related to it that I've told into boredom to people who know me, but it's the most on-brand thing. So that's that's something <laughs> that I'm looking forward to spell. But the, the point is that I have not read this since I was a teenager. And every now and then I take it off the shelf and I browse through it. And I could tell when I did that recently, I went, oh no, I kept thinking that fake was one of the safe ones where it's not that incredibly fucking problematic that yaoi loves to be wow i'd love to find one that wasn't incredibly problematic that would be that would be insane yeah and i flipped the page and i was like okay it's it's not up there with the worst because i could pull some examples yeah it's no uh, song of wind and trees oh i don't know this oh (laughs) okay we're we're just gonna have such a blast with the with the general yaoi boy love episode anyway back on track with this one though um, did you have any other notes that I haven't touched upon? Let me have a check. Uh, the only thing that's sort of like popping to my mind is that I wonder if this is going to be that book for people of the right sort of generation when they read it, whether, you know, when they're making a podcast in 20 years, they're picking that out, just remembering it fondly for being that that drama that sucked them in and meant everything to them for a short amount of time. Um and I, I hope it is. Yeah, I really do, because uh, it's clearly a massive amount of love that's gone gone into the creation of it. I've got two more bookmarks, and they just, I think, that again, they nicely demonstrate the absolutely amazing, amazing moments of storytelling in this book, and then the the bizarre moments of clumsiness which accom- which accompany them. On the page 110, there's a moment when Laura and Freddie have been kissing in a toilet stall. Laura leaves, and Freddie is about to ask you know do you want to do you want to see each other again and she just goes gotta go track practice and then tone some tone falls across the panel as the stall shuts and she's left in the toilet by her by herself there's just a beautiful use of tone and light in those bottom two panels as the door shuts and her expression changes as the shadow covers her and that whole thing it's you know it's a it's a lovely visual metaphor it's a lovely moment Mm -hmm. it reads beautifully the panel lands it just you know it's absolute kind of peak comic making and then on 154 another page using tone that could have been really impactful we see sort of laura and uh freddie in the foreground talking and laughing and flirting and in the background uh doodle and freddie's other friends sort of looking dubious at each other 
but it's very, very unclear how the background relates to the foreground, how much time is passing in each panel. I will have to say it is clear to me what happens, but I don't necessarily think it's executed to the best of its intent because it is trying to illustrate that there are several days in school where Freddie and Laura just hangs out together. Oh, you think this is day by day by day? It is because their clothes change. Right. They always have different clothes. And I didn't pick up on that. In the very final panel, the fourth panel on the bottom, none of the friends are there anymore because they're just like, you know what, fuck it. And you can see in the very first panel, it's the three of her friends. But then in the two following panel, it's just Doodle. And then even by the end, Doodle is like, fuck the shit, I'm out. Right. Okay. So if you don't, because the, the foreground characters are quite heavily toned and they were reading as silhouettes to me. So I wasn't picking up on the clothing changes. This is where I personally would have toned the background pink to make right. the distance way bigger between them and then had a lighter gray tone on the front because I do suspect this is a printing issue Yeah. because I do know I've learned this bitterly firsthand that prints get very dark. So I can imagine that on a PC screen when this was being made, the gray tones are probably a little lighter. So the clothing change read much easier than it does on a printed page. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, there are a couple of um, a couple of moments actually where the pink reproduces a bit too light as well. Like uh, there's a bit where she baths. I thought she was crying because I couldn't quite read the white text on the pink. So maybe it is just a, a reproduction issue, which would be a shame because actually now I'm reading it that way. It's a nice sequence. It really is, and I, I personally suspect it's something lost in print. And yeah. I, I do think that's just something that happens sometimes. So with a comic like Laura Dean, where there's very few different values and some of the values are so dark and then the rest is completely white then the very dark is going to be utter darkness might be uh, interesting noting here this could be an issue with me being a male reader as well i don't tend to pick up on things like costume changes as much as i notice my partner does for example where she's really keyed into that kind of thing and you get this even with like male character designers who just don't really put the same effort or thought into the context of the clothing that they put their characters in it's like the eternal everybody has jeans and a t-shirt of uh <laughs> of character design um but that starts i guess in the head when you are just not as tuned in to noticing that on other people in day-to-day life i don't know if i necessarily would say that that's gender related but just pure interest because i think it's it can quickly become dangerous to say that that's a thing that women do and men don't because that can also alienate men who do that and vice versa so i i personally think it's a field of interest and i know that one of my qualities is that i'm very very um, observant i can't really think of anything else to uh, uh to talk about with the story I, th- I think we've covered it all i neither hated it nor nor loved it but still got into it sort of my final thoughts on it are a little bit kind of non-conclusive and um <laughs> yeah don't you find that to be almost the most difficult reads because when you truly despise something it's easy to find stuff to talk about just like when you really love something it's also relatively easy to find things to gush about but when something falls in the middle of the middle of the road, it's so difficult because you want to remain constructive and it also doesn't deserve to be torn to pieces because it never did anything to deserve that kind of scrutiny. But yeah. you're so desperately searching for something to love 
that you kind of end up going in circles talking about it. Do you get that feeling? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can kind of feel us doing that a little bit. We've been wandering off topic and then back to the book and trying to find something good to, to sort of like wrap it up with. I think maybe it might be worth me just saying both with Mariko Tamaki and with Rosemary Valero O'Connell, there's other work by them that I absolutely love. And it's just a shame that uh, you know, I wasn't the audience for this, but also that it didn't sort of hit me creatively in the same way that some of their other work has. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you can join us again in another couple of weeks and also support us on Patreon. I'm forward slash Paul Duffield and Jaws is forward slash Jawsom. And we both have an exciting range of comics and behind the scenes stuff that you can take a look at. All right, bye. Bye. Join us next week for the next book we'll be talking about and support us both. Next week, it's in 14 days. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm so used to talking about weekly stuff because of the fucking comic. I mean, Um, I would love to do this weekly, but then I would have to become a full-time editor. Yeah, yeah. And you're doing the the real hard work here. And I'm making it harder for you right now. Hold on. Okay, right. Um, 